Welcome to the fifth podcast in the series, Owning Tomorrow, when vision and values collide with diversity and inclusion. I'm sitting together with my friend, Betty Ng, the founder CEO of Inspiring Diversity and co-founder of TIQ, which under her leadership helps organizations build inclusive and high-performing cultures. She is a best-selling author, tech and media entrepreneur, trainer, professional speaker, consultant, and thought leader. Betty holds an MBA from Harvard Business School, a BA in economics with honors from Stanford University, and an executive education certification for the Advanced Leadership Program for Asian American Executives from the Stanford University Graduate School of Business. And she's obviously not lazy at all. She's working very hard and achieving a lot. Welcome, Betty. Thank you so much for having me, John. I'm so excited to be speaking with you today. Likewise, I've always enjoyed our conversations and now hopefully our listeners will too. So my first question, 30 years ago, there were no chief diversity and inclusion officers. In fact, the topic itself was just one of many human related issues companies were addressing. Today, it seems to be the panacea that heals all organization wounds. How do you see it? Well, it's true that many people talk about diversity and inclusion as if it's all you need to drive business and organizational success. But before you can even talk about diversity and inclusion, you really need to ensure that there is really an alignment of values and vision. I agree. That's for me, when I work with my clients, that's the absolute first thing we address before anything else, even if they have their business running, that has got to be in place. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, because when you don't have an alignment of core values, there's really not much to talk about. Um, and I can, can even share a personal experience that I had uh, in recent years. Mm -hmm. When I, I partnered up with someone with whom I thought that I had an overall alignment in with respect to vision. But it turned out that we didn't have an alignment with respect to core values. And I guess I didn't really realize that at first. And for some reason, we just didn't really seem to, to see eye to eye. And there was a lot of tension in terms of our relationship. And I kept banging my head against the wall in a sense, because I was saying to myself, well, how could this be? Because we're both trying to drive diversity and inclusion. That's our mission, that's our objective. So why are we not able to effectively work together? And so for years, I actually tried to make the relationship work. And then one day it really hit me that the issue was in fact that we didn't have an alignment in terms of our core values. And what do I mean by that? I felt that there was a disconnect in terms of um, our commitment to each other, our work ethic, as well as integrity, those core values. And so without an alignment in terms of not just vision, but core values, you can't really talk about diversity and inclusion. It's a moot point. Oh, that's fascinating. It's a great story. It's sort of the paradox that when soon said, again, that culture and, uh, or, or diversity inclusion is the panacea that heals all wounds, but actually it can be a real problem 
if you don't have the basics sorted out. Um, so, so how did you end up resolving this? And what do you think his core, core values were that were not in alignment with yours? Well, so ultimately we, we decided to part ways. Um, and yes, that was kind of a process, right? And I right. wish that I had, um, and that we had really known each other better um, you know, before deciding to partner up and, and really actually aligned, made sure that we were in alignment in terms of those core values. And I think that a lot of times people may say, okay, well, yeah, of course, um, we're aligned in terms of worth work ethic and, um, integrity and commitment to each other. But sometimes it's really hard to know that until you've tested it, right? It's mm -hmm. really, it has to stand the test of time. And yeah. so, so really, you know, the commitment to each other, you know, that kind of comes out sort of as you go along. Um, and so, but I, I would say that those were sort of the, the tension points in terms of misalignment, in terms of values. You know, what's interesting, I just realized is that really you can have, you can sh share the same vision but not share the same values, or you can also have very similar values, but don't have the same uh, visions or mission statements. Uh, I'm actually talking to somebody about joining up to do some business. We have absolutely the same core values. I don't think our visions for what we're doing, and we're both fascinated by the topic, uh, are aligned. I'm not so sure it's gonna work out. But more importantly, let's talk about what it really means. Uh, obviously, everybody talks about core values, and for many, it sounds highly theoretical, and it's you know it's a nice to have, but what does it really mean day to day? And indeed, the day to day operations can sort of get in the way of you know, living the core values. But um, how do you operationalize this? What, how does this appear in day to day life? Core values, and how do you live them? Yeah, I it really does boil down to day-to-day -day behavior, right? And so, so really people can have, let's say, let's take a value of uh, being respectful, right? And being respectful actually can, you it comes out in terms of behavior itself and how do you display that? And I think that Sometimes there, and this is where diversity and inclusion also it comes into play. Yeah, absolutely. Because how, how people demonstrate respect can be very different, right? Mm -hmm. So depending on where you are in the world, um, you know, that culture, or even different things such as neurodiversity, like, mm -hmm. you know, whether yeah. you, for example, have ADHD or whether you don't, right? Yeah. Um, sort of, yeah, we take not, the example. Even, yeah. yeah. Even, uh, neuro, you know, depending on how, uh, you know, did you do a PhD or did you, you know, only do college? There's a difference there. How much you do in self-improvement, get to know yourself. Um, you may think you're being respectful, but there's something inside you that, uh, causes it not to appear respectful in your behaviors. Yeah, and it's a lot of it is about interpretation. What right. what 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 constitutes respect, right? Mm -hmm. In certain cultures, um, for example, being on time right. is a, you know a sign of respect and utmost respect because then you yeah. value the other person's time. But yeah. then in other cultures, 
you know, the, the value of time is a little bit looser, right? right? And so if you're a half hour late in certain cultures, it's not such a big deal, you know, and it's right. kind of part of the expectations and whatnot. And then, you know, uh, when we're talking about difference in terms of neurodiversity. So for example, um, I have family members with ADHD right. and this, this is actually one of the biggest, um, you know, uh, tension points for us mm -hmm. because I'm a very prompt person, but right. because people with ADHD sometimes do not have the same sense of time, um, mm -hmm. At least in my family, those who <laughs> have these symptoms, maybe several um, things, yeah. you know, yes, maybe several things, but it's sort of, but they don't see being late as a sign of disrespect. You see, yeah. so it's so, so really, you know, in terms would it of have something to coming back to diversity and inclusion, would it have anything to do since you study this and you are Asian American, anything with your culture, the Asian American culture, because I always think of them being highly prompt all the time. And always on point, always focused. But yeah, so that yeah, so that's the interesting thing. Um, so Asian American means a whole lot of things, and right. and uh, some some cultures within Asia more prompt than others. Um, actually, I I um, I think that uh, you know for me it may actually be really just about my personal family's upbringing. Okay. My entire mm -hmm. family very mm -hmm. very prompt. Um, yeah. In terms of, you know, yeah, your mother was a real powerhouse, wasn't she? Yeah, she still is. She's still a very, very much a powerhouse. And so, um, yeah, like my family tends to show up early, <laughs> not even on time, <laughs> early, right? And then, but then now, you know, in terms of my my husband and my, you know, my children and so forth, I'm uh -huh. dealing in a different ball game, right? But yeah. <laughs> it's so interesting because I was raised, uh, my father's from Vienna and my Viennese grandparents, uh, well, my father was born in Vienna and they came in the war back, uh, to, came to America. And my grandparents uh, still kept their belief patterns from Vienna. So they actually said to me, we never show up early. We never show up late. We show up exactly when we're told to come. If we show up early, we'll sit in the car until <laughs> the hour. And so I have been trained and to, to obsession to be exactly on time, not early and not late. Um, <laughs> very dramatic. So that's interesting how, how that's already a tiny little uh, cultural difference is that you, you're happy to show up early, but I would be uncomfortable showing up early because my whole family is not showing up exactly on time. <laughs> yeah, so, that, so, that, so, um, so give me some examples in the workplace that you've seen. Um, uh, you know, we always run the risk of quasi profiling or sounding a little racist, but there are aspects of people's ethnicity their backgrounds, their family, and so forth that play a huge role. Um, you know, coming back to my Germanic upbringing, uh, when I was working at Discovery, uh, I was in the international division dealing with strategy, which means you deal with lots of issues that come up and you have to have fairly deep conversations. And when I first met the head of Latin America, uh, Henry said to me, you gotta stop being so Germanic you're in Latin America now and it's different and we're proud of how we are. So we don't want you trying to superimpose your Germanic punctuality and exactness on our somewhat different and more relaxed culture. And that for me was a real, I mean, I took it seriously. It was, you know, at the time 
pretty important that I do that, otherwise I would not have been accepted. So do you have any stories from your life of things that you've seen where there's been some work you've had to do with an organization? Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I think the one thing, for example, is about communication styles, right? right. And, mm-hmm. and, and really trying to bridge that. And it's interesting, I am Asian American. I consider mm-hmm. myself really down the middle, Half Asian, <laughs> half American. Half American, yeah. Um, and so, so in the U.S., the communication style tends to be more direct. But the Asian, and actually, I would say the Chinese-specific mm-hmm. communication style is less direct. And it is mm-hmm. actually even embedded in the language itself. Mm-hmm. So, um, for example... Uh, in English, in the U.S., people will say the computer in the mm-hmm. room. Mm-hmm. In Chinese, it's actually you first say the room and then the computer and then you focus huh. on the computer. Right. And huh. so it's first about the you know surrounding mm-hmm. and then you get to the specific versus mm-hmm. in For English sure. and the American language, you know, you know sort of in American culture, Boy, it's really very direct. It's the computer, the specific, and then you talk about the surrounding, right? It's interesting you bring that up, yeah, because the difference between English and German is the sentence structure. Often, depending on if you use a subordinate clause, the verb comes at the very end. So you're actually not entirely sure what people are talking about until the verb shows up at the end, whereas in English, the verb is always right after the object, the subject. Um, yes. And that can, first of all, to learn it is a little, because it's not weird. But yeah, uh, just simple grammar and how language is structured mm-hmm. can be a big mm-hmm. difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there, there sometimes may be tension, right? Mm-hmm. Where, you know, Americans may think, just get to the point, right? <laughs> but it's sort of, you know, for cultural reasons, sometimes you, you know, people feel like they've got to provide the context first before they actually get to the point. Exactly, right? exactly. Um, what are other ways uh, that you see this, this uh, diversity and inclusion, the, the movement of diversity and inclusion? How do you see that forming and how, what do you say? Tell me a little bit of how you see the future of it. And also tell me a little bit about your work in that area. Sure, sure. So just to take a step back, as you had mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, I am the founder and CEO of Inspiring Diversity, and then also the co-founder of another company called TaiQ. So I see myself and my overall purpose as being a builder of inclusive and high-performing culture. And so, so between the two companies, it's really you know, I continue to focus on that overall purpose and mission. Inspiring diversity is very much focused on what what the name says, inspiring diversity. It's really about how do we inspire and empower uh, all of us to be our authentic selves um, and also to highlight diversity, inspire others with the stories of, diverse people of diverse backgrounds to help to develop the empathy and understanding of people of different backgrounds. So that's that's really the focus of Inspiring Diversity. And we, we um, 
you know, do a number of speaking engagements and also have cahoots and videos, things that really are meant to engage people to really understand different communities and, and start to break down some of the bias as well as to build understanding and empathy. And on the Thai Q side, well, one, oh, okay, because I'm interested in the business case. You always bring up the business case as well. Uh, right. For it. Um, so, uh, so in terms of Thai Q, mm -hmm. uh, so instead of your EQ or your IQ, it's about your Thai Q, your think, ah. act, interact quotient for inclusive mm -hmm. behavior. And Thai Q is very focused on basically embedding inclusive behavior into cultural DNA. So mm -hmm. while inspiring diversity is really about empowering authenticity and diversity, Taiki is really about creating that environment, fostering that environment where authenticity and diversity can truly flourish. Mm -hmm. So they work mm -hmm. hand in hand together. It's interesting because um, you know, as a chair with Vistage, we diversity is what it's all about. Uh, and all forms of diversity. When I form a group of CEOs or um, uh, business owners, not only do I look for diversity of industries, but I look for ethnic diversity. I look for diversity of experience, diversity of backgrounds, diversity of education. Uh, the one thing that has to unite them, because there's always something, is indeed the values. We're looking mm -hmm. for certain values, uh, things like being open and vulnerable, respectful, and so forth. And that's what determines whether or not you can be a Vistage member. Um, but we, we want diversity. And of course, my role as facilitator is to be inclusive, make sure everybody has a chance to speak, you know, actually facilitate, not just let somebody dominate it. Um, uh, so that's very interesting. Um, yeah. What about, yeah. Absolutely, and I, you know, just to, just to um, reinforce a point that you, you were making, Diversity, people must, must remember, is not just about race and gender. There are mm -hmm. so Excellent. many, so many aspects of diversity that drive ultimately that diversity of thought and perspectives that ultimately drive what we call the business case for mm -hmm. diversity inclusion. Because it is with that, that yeah. yeah, because, well, you know, what, what actually drives diversity of thought? that leads to innovation, creativity, um, you know, a um, lot of different potential solutions being, you know, brought up to the fore. It's really a combination of really, well, what, 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 what influences thought and perspectives? It is a combination of our backgrounds, right? Our education about our experiences, which can be formulated by a number of things, where we grew up, what schools we went to, the people that we, that we uh, you know, hung out with, you know, really what we studied, where we traveled, all of these things, um, you know, our religion, uh, you know, of course, you know, the, you know, what we, what we call if we wanna take a step back, there are there's like primary diversity and then there's secondary diversity, primary diversity in terms of things that are innate and you can't really change. Um, and then there's, there's secondary diversity with respect to, um, you know, your socioeconomic class, your education and, and other things, right? Um, so, so it's really a combination of a lot of things that actually 
inform diversity of thought. And it is with that diversity of thought that, you know, you have different perspectives because everybody, if everybody thought the same way, you would have very limited ideas, right? But exactly. as we know, you need all these different perspectives and, and, and ways of thinking to, to really help to supercharge an organization. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the creativity, the innovation, um, really better understanding different markets so you can, can expand your market reach, right? Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. so, so it's, it's really important to have all of that. Yeah, I, uh, and that is the reason why uh, Vistage is, is it's so important for diversity in a group. And this is something that a lot of my career has been about, first as a consultant, now as a coach, is you never know when the, the next best great solution or best new idea or whatever comes from somewhere you least expect it, and most often from a different industry or from somebody you never thought would you know, have that idea because they've just had an experience where they say, my God, I've got this, the answer for you that you've been looking for. And it Absolutely. only happens when it's diverse. Absolutely. And I, I also should, should stress that also age is mm. such an important element. And, and, and I've seen it play out so many times in my own life and career where diversity in terms of age has been so critical to innovation. Um, it's happened within my family and as it relates to my business. So for example, um, you had mentioned, you know, I, I'm a best-selling author. So I've authored a book with my mother, mm -hmm. right? Different generation. We've mm -hmm. learned a ton from each other. And mm -hmm. you actually, like by sharing each other's stories and so forth, we also see commonality in terms of our approach to figure out what actually works universally mm -hmm. to help propel success. But then also when I wrote my book with my mother, I tried to explain to my children some of these core principles. Mm -hmm. And then um, when I spoke to my daughter about it, I, you know, I was explaining to her the polling power principles upon which um, our adult book was based. And then my daughter said, mommy, I really love you know, the polling principles, but honestly, I don't think any child would wanna read your book. And then first I was offended, admittedly, but then I said, you know what? You're right. You are right. I need to know my audience. Yes. Uh, and, yes. And so because of that diversity of perspective that my, my own daughter provided to me, actually we wound up writing um, a series of children's books based ah. on the polling principles. And ah. they are best-selling and award-winning. Wow, but, good for you. But, but if I had tried to write these, you know, children's books on my own, there is no way that it would have resonated the same way with right, children right, because yeah. I did not understand my audience well enough. And you bring up a really good point. Uh, a couple of funny, not so funny in the sense that it was a bit uh, misogynist, but um, you know, in consulting, very often the men dominate, um, and you just don't have that many women. First of all, it's a, you know, it, it it doesn't leave a lot of room for a personal life, uh, let alone having children. But uh, a, a request came for a presentation from Maybelline. They wanted they were hiring consultants, 
And guess what? We had to have a woman in the team. And I was the only one who had a woman in my team is, you know, in the larger company that was available. She went to the Maybelline call because she was part of the target audience. She had, they had to bring a woman to, to a cosmetics company. Otherwise it would look like they're totally not there. So that's another argument <laughs> yep. for diversity. Yes. You're dealing with right. a diverse audience and customer base. And you right. gotta be able to service it. And that sometimes requires many different kinds of people and, and ethnicities and so forth. Absolutely. And even with my work with TyQ, our team, really spans from the ages of early 20s to mid 60s. And everyone's perspectives matter equally. Yes. So while, you know, my partner and I are, you know, the more senior ones of the team, we really listen to our younger team members. Because when we think about our audience in terms of organizations that we want to work with, Right. And how are how the TyQ offering is going to resonate with employees and really gain traction. It's not just about um, trying to meet the needs of, of people who are, you know, more senior in their careers. It's also about those who are younger in their careers and throughout the career life cycle. Right. So it's really important to to get all of those perspectives. And really, we as a result of the diversity on our team, not, you know, not only with respect to, um, you know, race, ethnicity, gender, but also age, um, it's, it's just helped supercharge us. Yeah, and, and there's been a lot of very good work done on that. I recently attended a presentation where you talked about the four generations in the workplace and how each generation brings particularities based on their formative years. Tell me a little bit about how you operationalize this and how do you bridge that gap that we've been talking about between values and behaviors? Yeah, absolutely. So it really is important to adopt core inclusive behaviors to support those common values and vision. And that's really where Taiku comes into play. And based on extensive research uh, and experience, we've been able to boil inclusive behavior down to key, eight key behaviors. And so even skills like empathy actually are a combination of some of those key behaviors. And so it is really by focusing on inclusive behaviors, specific behaviors such as being open, aware, unbiased, performance and goal-oriented, curious, culturally competent, collaborative, and courageous. Mm. Those are some key inclusive behaviors that can really supercharge the building of inclusive culture. And those eight key behaviors are behaviors that all organizations should want endeavor to embrace regardless mm-hmm. of what their values and their vision are because they really are form the basis of inclusion and helping to propel any organization to success. And if by chance <laughs> these behaviors don't align with values of an organization, then you have to question the values of the yeah, organization. Right. You have to go back. Yeah, no, exactly. And I've done that with clients. I had one client who was talking about the functional silos. He was a recently he was recently made president of the company, and. Um, so uh, 
I thought to myself, I better ask this question. I asked it. So are, is teamwork part of your core values? And he said, hmm, I better take a look. And guess what? Teaming was not one of the core values. And I said, you got to go back and read your core values. <laughs> if you're having problems with functional silos and people not working together, it's because it's not one of the values. And again, he was almost sort of like, I don't remember the exercise of having done core values, but he obviously needed to revisit them. And that's exactly what he did. Yeah, yeah. And and so in terms of behavior, Taiki's approach is really very much that. And fundamental belief is that culture is the sum of the individuals, right? So when we say, organiz- oh, the organization's doing this, the organization's doing that, who's actually doing it? It's actually individuals. individuals. And so, mm-hmm. so we need to kind of really take a deep, hard look at individual behavior, how mm-hmm. we each think, act, and interact with mm-hmm. respect to inclusive behaviors ultimately influences how an organization looks with respect to diversity and representation, how it acts in terms of uh, promoting diversity and inclusion and how it feels in terms of the employee's sense of belonging and equity. So you need to really look at inclusive individual inclusive behaviors if we're going to really make traction with respect to broader organizational success and um, really pushing diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging forward. Excellent. Well, thank you again, Betty, for joining me. It's been a fascinating conversation as always. Thank you so much for the opportunity, John. I really enjoyed our discussion here today.